I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is a true hero, like I mean it, a true hero. Dr. Wahid Aryan is a doctor in the A&E, in the National Health uh, Service uh, in the United Kingdom. His personal story leading to this place in life is unbelievably inspiring, starting from Afghanistan, going through wars, refugee camps, asylum, working simple jobs all the way till he became the doctor that he is today is an absolutely inspiring story, which he documents in his autobiography in the wars. And he not only is an incredible hero uh, in, in terms of how he survived all of the challenges in his life, but he then pioneered a charity, which is called Ariane uh, Telehiel, that works directly with clinics around the globe to provide medics on the ground with support from volunteers in advanced nations. So medics in war zones and conflict zones and zones with no advanced medicine would be able to get re-access to those who have the knowledge and the education. He devised this with a very simple technology and has saved hundreds of lives as a result. Dr. Ariane has been recognized as a UNESCO Global Hope Hero, a United Nations Global Goals Goalkeeper, and NHS Innovation Mentor. He was appointed to the World Health Organization roster of digital health experts in 2019, And in the UK, he has been awarded the Rotary International Peace Award and the Prime Minister's Points of Light Award. I don't want to spoil the story to you, but I will tell you this will be one of the most inspiring slow-mo episodes you have ever heard. I'm a huge fan of Wahid, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Dr. Wahid Ariane. I am such a big fan I have so much respect for what you do, for you as a person, for your story. I have to admit to you, when I looked at what you're doing, I was like, wow, why why is that not even standard? Like, why is that not something that every doctor in the world should be doing? But before we go there, I want to thank you tremendously for your time. I know you're very, very busy. And I will completely understand if you got a call in the middle and said, hold on, I need to answer this call. So uh, we will pause the recording. You go answer the calls because you're saving lives. And I want to start, Dr. Wahid, by, by maybe describing to, to people very, very, very high level what uh, Ariane Telehil is. We'll come back to it in detail afterwards. But just so that people understand the magnitude of what we're talking about here. And then I want to talk about your personal story first before we tell people the details. So at a very top level, what is Telehil? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Mo, uh, it's a really great pleasure to be with you. As soon as I saw the title slow-mo, I said, oh, I like that. I want to slow down. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So uh, then I went and and I saw that you're doing such an amazing work. You've got inspirational speakers, inspirational guests with you. And I immediately told my team that I would love to be on that podcast. There you go. Uh, So please make time. And uh, yes, so we've got synergy. We do, do have synergy and we'll come to the details of how to slow down in life. We will come to that later on because we are talking about high frequency first and then we'll come to, yeah. to the uh, yeah. to slowing down about mental health uh, later on. Aaron Telehill is a uh, international telemedicine charity that I founded in 2015. What it does is it connects medical experts from the NHS, Australia, US, Canada and other parts of the developed world to medics in conflict zones and in low resource countries on smartphones. And by doing so, they're giving life-saving advice 
and enhancing each other's education. So it's simple as that. And they do that from the comfort of their own home, their office, on a break, middle of the night, and it's done on smartphones. As simple as that. So the survey that we did in 2019 from our work in Afghanistan alone over three years, it showed that it had contributed to saving nearly 700 lives, which is hugely humbling for myself and our entire team. That's on your work in Afghanistan. And we'll come to the details that now we have spread in Syria and parts of Africa. And uh, recently we've been working heavily in India as well through a partnership that we have with another charity that uh, has volunteers, 650 volunteers from the British Indian origin. They're all physicians. So initially we started in Afghanistan and now we are uh, global, but we do operate through simple technology but the main power is the power of compassion and giving. When like-minded people come together, they want to do something good. And we facilitated that for them. And that's as simple as that. So it's actually the human compassion is the key to it. Yeah, the most beautiful part of it is that typically you see people investing in very sophisticated technology and really, really logging things and making sure that everything is I don't know, I want to call it first world standard. While in reality, I felt in my heart when I saw you talking that what you were trying to do is to say the problem is in the other world and the other world doesn't care about any of this. They just want someone to help them when they are in a dire situation. There has been a bomb that landed on a hospital that injured 40 people and killed a few and now we need to find a way to help those people. So forget log on and sign ups and, you know, let's just connect people to people, which I think is fascinating. So why to start? Let's start from the beginning. I think your story is so inspiring. You're in the NHS now, how many years? I have been in the NHS for more than 10 years, but I think before we come to that, you've touched up on something very, very important, the essence of our work the innovation, which you've just described so beautifully, and that is problem solving. Yeah. So the problem is exists in low resource countries, in areas where there is no innovation, where there is no technology, very little. But the problem is lack of medical expertise on the ground. And that's where actually the light bulb moment for me happened in 2015 was that the advanced technology didn't exist, but smartphones did replica of uh, smartphones, uh, very cheap ones, were available amongst all the doctors and even teenagers. And the internet was brought in to Afghanistan. It was very cheap. It still is in those uh, parts of the world. So I combined that too with the aim to bring in the medical expertise right onto their smartphones without bringing any new technology, without bringing in new connectivity, advanced screens and all that. Because we tried that for a little bit, for a year or so. The government told us that they will try to bring in. It didn't happen. And then I could foresee that there will be delays after delays after delays. We're not solving the problem. We're working in emergency departments on the front line. They can't just leave a patient come to the screen. So telemedicine, which is simply giving advice online by a physician, did exist before uh, Arian Teleheal. MSF was doing it. Uh, many other organizations were doing it. But that was more through more advanced systems where you have to capture an image, upload it onto the system by email, you send it, somebody else receive it, they open it up and so on. So there are so many steps. Whereas with smartphones, take a picture, get a video call and just get on with it and or, or it. a voice call or a text and, and simply start talking. Like humans. So even for us to get on this, to this conversation, we had to log in, we had to check so many things before we started. And we are in a very comfortable and a very developed world with technology and, and we both know technology but it took us a while but whereas on smartphones you don't have to so that was the whole thing and we didn't go down the route of creating another app so i'm trying to summarize the whole innovation behind our it. work and hopefully some people listening to it i absolutely they will it. understand that it's about problem solving it's simply about problem solving you work backwards eliminate the steps and necessary steps the big problem was lack of expertise how do we solve it We've got the expertise in the UK across the globe. How do we bring them together? Smartphones, oh, everybody God. uses. How? Yeah. Encrypted social media, that's it. So all the immediate steps were removed, but then 
when it comes to medical data, governance, and so on, that's where I had to learn over the years how to protect the charity, how to indemnify volunteers, how to make sure that we follow the GDPR guidelines of uh, transferring data. So background is complex, but I eliminate that from the surface. We leave that to us. And hence, we've got partners, which are digital health lawyers who came in to, to help us pro bono. They said, wow, you've got something beautiful going. Can we help you with this, this, this? And then we created documents in the background and all that. But we don't touch the simple work on the surface, which is simply connecting people, removing the noise. So you're just left with the basic stuff, which is giving advice, saving lives. Amazing, beautiful, because also it boils down to humanity, really, not the system. It's a doctor in, in the war zone or in the conflict area or in a refugee camp or whatever, connecting to a person on the other side, one, someone that needs the help with connected to someone that has the knowledge, right? So take me through a scenario. A doctor gets a, a case of, a I don't know, a child injured or whatever. What do they do? Do they pick a certain doctor that's saved on their basically on their contact lists, or do they go to the app and the app recommends a doctor? What happens? So prior to COVID, we had groups for our specialists, uh, for uh, children's specialists, bone specialists, general surgeons. And so according to all that, we had gathered groups here. On the other end, for example, in Afghanistan, we had groups for each hospital. So that was prior. And in the middle, I was the coordinator to start with, and I was overnight 24-7 coordinating calls. I would receive a call which would be simply summarized uh, text message. We have got 18-year-old who had just been hit by a bomb blast. He's lost his leg. He's in emergency room at the moment. He's losing blood. What do we do next? So hence, I will just immediately see, okay, so now this requires emergency management to stop the bleeding. After that, what other parts of his body have been affected? So we take them through a trauma protocol, the same as I do in the emergency medicine, but I didn't do it. I don't give it advice. I was simply summarizing, send it to our emergency room on the WhatsApp group for the emergency doctors. And one of them will say, okay, I'm free. And they would just connect directly to that doctor and give them step-by-step -step advice, either by text message or a phone call or a video call. Um, simple as that. So they would just connect that way. During the pandemic, what we did was within two weeks, uh, when the Ministry of Public Health in Afghanistan informed us that they need support, because we were dealing with a pandemic prior to they were dealing with it. So we had the expertise, we had the intensive care specialists and anesthetists who knew how to do it. We got gathered them on one hand here. And then on the other hand, the government pulled all the COVID doctors, the doctors who were assigned for COVID in one big group. And we have a group of 100, 250 people, all physicians. And we put them together and we gave them, these are the steps. If you want to discuss a case, this is how you do it. And then we introduced weekly seminars to them as well. Every week, the guidelines are changing, as we know now. The rules are changing. And within medicine, of how treatment happens, which medicine to use, which one not to use, they wouldn't know. And they wouldn't have that up-to-date information. But here, a physician who is St. Guinea's or in Thomas's in London or in Birmingham would be online for them or from America. And they will immediately tell them what is the new guideline or if it's a case, they would take them straight case uh, to deal with it or give them the advice uh, about the guidelines and weekly seminars. So that kind of brought them together. And what you mentioned about the humanity, it just shines through that. They know each other's names now. They haven't seen each other. It's thousands of miles away from each other, but they communicate beautifully with each other. I only simply look at the phone just to see if everything is okay, if there is some sort of miscommunication or anything. I interfere. Other than that, I just step back now. I look at that and make sure that they're on, on, and they're absolutely on friendship and humanity terms. How many volunteers do you have doing this, Dr. White? So we have more than 150 volunteers ourselves, but now we have um, partnered with other organizations, with the one that I mentioned from the British Association of Physicians of Indian Origin. They brought in 650 volunteers oh my God. within the two weeks. As soon as we started helping in India, they said, they have more than, uh, I think, about tens of thousands of participants in their association. They put a call, 650 came forward, oh, we will do it. And they're all helping. Even now when I'm talking, there is a case going on that uh, in uh, doctors uh, from the British Association of Physicians of Indian Origin, BAPIO, they're helping back in India. 
solving cases. They again went through the same route. Oh, do we develop an app? Do we do this? Do we create another technology? I simply told them, listen, I've been through this. Just stick to this and we'll protect you in terms of the governance to make sure the language, the data, to make sure that doctors who are giving advice, their backgrounds are checked. So we don't have somebody who's substandard. So we adhere to the global international standards, but just keeping the work simple. I want to say, of course, saving 700 lives in Afghanistan or, you know, helping with the COVID situation in India. These are remarkable achievements, remarkable. Team achievements. But the big achievement here is something I've been crying for the world for a while, which is to drop all of the layers of complexity and go back to humanity. Humanity basically says, I am a doctor. I want to save lives. And it, you know, if I make a call in 10 minutes on WhatsApp or whatever, and that saves a life, then my purpose in life has been achieved. The other doctor on the other side, no ego, no, this is my case. They're basically saying, okay, I have a case that I haven't dealt with before. Maybe I can get someone to help me out. And those connections, as you said, they lead to friendships, but also I think of course, they lead to saving lives. But also, I think they lead to changing the way humanity, maybe we've missed that bit. We've missed the bit of actually just connecting to do something. It doesn't have to be within the very complex environments that we now call work and governance and regulations and all of that. How do you get doctors specifically to stop worrying about all of that complex bureaucracy and just say, hey, I'm about helping. I want to help. Well, we've simplified it to that extent. So in the background, I've, we've done, our team has done a huge work in terms of simplifying, first of all, understanding what the legal obstacles are, the challenges are, what are the clinical challenges are, to make sure, especially working in medicine, we can't get away from the bureaucracy on one hand, but we can simplify it. And I do agree to a certain level of governance, because without that, I think we will risk patient. And that's what we don't want. Our first aim in medicine is to help patients and not cause harm. So anything, so from that simple formula backwards, we try to work out that what is it that might suffer or make the patient suffer, whether it's in Afghanistan or here. If they're not happy with information being shared, let's not do it. If they're not happy with a substandard clinical advice, let's not do it. So if we work again through humanity, thinking about patients rather than the rules, it becomes far easier for us to think. But then, of course, the doctors, they train for such a long time, they worry, and I worry as well. We don't want to be in court just because we've given it the wrong advice or the advice has not been taken correctly in another part of the world. So hence, we have done a lot of that work in the background. We signed that agreement with the ministry or the NGO that we operate with on the ground. And then we tell them that, hey, whatever questions you have, we have answered them for you. Now you just get on with your work, your friendship, and you save lives, and that's it. Amazing. And when, when you started all of this, Dr. Wahid, you, you actually didn't have funding, and you were putting in, like most of your your time really you know you're traveling to afghanistan you were on the phone all the time or a lot of the time you know like the doctors we see in the old classic movies you know the doctor that gets the call at 2 a.m in the morning and still wakes up you know and yes. still cares right <laughs> i'm still in that classic movie <laughs> yeah exactly which really was so refreshing when you think about i i had covid a very 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 bad case actually back in february and I just didn't know it was COVID. So it took me a long time until I realized. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It was an, an amazing experience. It took me a very long time to realize, oh, I really need to be serious about this. But then, you know, wow. by, by the time I was at that stage, I needed a doctor. I couldn't just get up and go to the, to the, to the hospital right away. And it was so difficult to find someone that could actually come and advise. And I have millions of friends, right? Because of all of those regulations, because of all of the fear of like, I can't really touch you if I'm not protected by the system and so on. And it just reminded me of those times, you know, in the old movies 
you know, black and white movie where the patient is not feeling great at 2 a.m. and they call the doctor and, you know, the doctor puts their glasses on, right? And this is what it's about. Now, you personally gave yourself, you gave your family life, you gave your uh, money. I mean, you worked, if I remember correctly, you, you, you used to work weekends to make money for your family, but spent most I of still your... do, yes. So weekends is where I work on the uh, front line in emergency, and that's uh, uh, my main source of income. So tell moment. me a bit about that. And also, I enjoy working in the NHS. So thank you so much for mentioning all that. Yes, from the charity perspective, in terms of what I've given to it is, I don't want to go into detail because it's something that's been so rewarding. It's such been such... Please do to inspire some others. Yeah. So, uh, sure. The charity, when it started, it was just me going back and forth to Afghanistan. So when I became a doctor in 2010, hopefully after this, we'll go back to how I was inspired and what my background story was. So which people will uh, help and connect to why I began the charity in the first place. But after I became a doctor in 2010, I started going back and forth to Afghanistan to help in any way I could. So on my own, I was going every four months, six months, taking my leave to see my family. And the second day I would leave my mom and dad in the house, I said, oh, can I, I'm just going to go to this hospital to see if I could do anything. And they all said, come on, son, you've just come here after three months, four months, and you want to do. But I would just make an excuse to say, hey, you know, I've come here. They might need my help. Let me see if I can do something. But I saw that on my own, I couldn't achieve much, even though I was trying to help. I was trying to give a lecture here and there. But then I also saw that so many people in the NHS, they wanted to help as well, but they couldn't just fly out to Afghanistan. They couldn't just take leave on their own. So I made dozens of trips back and forth to Afghanistan, consuming all my leave, annual leave. And, you know, instead of taking holidays here and there, that was my main holiday that I was doing. And I was frustrated because I couldn't make an impact and then I could see that people were suffering. I could see my own parents, they were traveling to Pakistan to get treatment. So many other families, they were going to Pakistan and they still do, and sadly. It's not that our charity has solved everything. We've created the blueprint of how things should be done. But sadly, now the conflict is rising, the COVID is rising, so a lot of people are still affected, millions. But that was the misery I was seeing on one hand. And then I put in everything I had in terms of my annual leave. When I founded a charity, I was working five days, in the evenings, I was on call 24-7 for the charity, working during the day in hospital, weekends and A&E just to... Initially, I was training as a radiologist from 2014 till 2017. And at the same time, I was working as an emergency doctor as well to supplement my salary to make sure that it accommodates for the travels that I do and for everything else. I couldn't employ anybody, so I was taking all the phone calls, all the management, and on the side, the recruitments, going to conferences, speaking, encouraging people on this end. On the other end, I would do all the diplomacy, sitting across the table with uh, the Minister of Health, the chiefs of the hospitals, reassuring them that everything will be okay for, for them to allow me to infiltrate their entire healthcare system, which is uh, almost impossible to do because they would not allow people simply in a conflict zone it could be seen as a threat you're coming from the uk what are you doing in this country but the fact that i was speaking from the language of humanity i was telling them my own personal story of the suffering of the 15 years that i left in war i was born into war and my genuine desire to help allowed them to open their arms to let me infiltrate into the healthcare system and to build all that friendship so he has a lot of hassle and tussle diplomacy on that end a lot of going to hospitals and then being caught here and there in the bomb going off, so risking my life. And on this end, trying to work as hard as I can to provide for my family. Uh, I got married in 2014, they started having a family, so that obligation was on me as well. But overall, the experience, it's not I'm complaining in any way. I found it so rewarding, the fact that I've been able to help on my own and then later on to bring the help of so many people together that in a way it became my own healing. Giving became my own healing of the traumas that I'd suffered as a child. And that later on, I didn't do it for that reason, but the more I was doing it, the happier I was getting. Some people might see it, you know, is this guy crazy? But no, many people tell me, the doctors, colleagues, where do you get all your energy from that you just can't stop? But for me, it's just so rewarding that I'm in a system where every case that's solved, even if we can't save somebody, at least we've tried. 
the fact that we're just trying, the fact that I see the support coming from various doctors, that compassion, it just touches my heart every time. So that's in a way, all the time I look at that and it's scientifically proven that the, the happiness actually lies in giving. The main way to do that is if we focus too much on ourselves rather than the rest of the world, we can be consumed by our own desires, by our own egos, by our own insecurities. But sometimes if we just step out and say, you know what, how can we help others? It just makes sense. The world makes sense that there is a purpose. And my purpose was actually born in war-torn Afghanistan in a refugee camp when I was five years old, when I was suffering from tuberculosis. And I saw firsthand the power of healing, of how a doctor saved me when I had about 70% chance of dying in that refugee camp. No, 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 no. no. So that's when I was inspired. Let's not skip over <laughs> this story. So you were born in Afghanistan and at age five, you had to fled, right? So you had to escape. Yeah, so I was born in 1983 during the Afghan-Soviet conflict. And the first five years, I have patchy memories of them, but they are all consisting of me hiding with the rest of my family and sellers from the daily rockets, the bombs, the jets in the sky and the tanks outside with the soldiers rolling. But whereas my mother would tell us like, oh, this is just fireworks. Any bomb would go off. And the two happy memories that I have is being taken by my mother along with my cousins to a nearby park to have an ice cream. That was a very big happy day for me. Another big happy day that I remember in the first five years, from the first five years of my life, is my dad kneeling down and giving me a huge kite in his military uniform and then him disappearing because he had to flee from the military service to hide in the mountains in a province uh, called Logar, where he was born. And we were raised by my mother with very little money, that the rent that we would get from the shops on the front. And she would buy whatever little bread or... Um, some vegetables and secondhand clothes in the market, if you could find, with holes in them here and there, but with mismatching colors. But whatever that keeps us warm in very, very freezing winters. And in the summer, the sun was terrible. But on the other hand, we had to hide in cellars. So that's the first five years. And during those five years, we had to go back and forth to Loga province to see our, our dad as well. We didn't know where we were going. He suddenly would reappear from some mountains, from villages to stay with us for, for a few days. And then we would come back to Kabul. He would again disappear in uh, those villages. So after those five years that we couldn't be together, like millions of other refugees, we uh, migrated to Pakistan. We wanted to go there to be together, to be safe. But the journey we took from Loga province to Pakistan was not through a normal border. And the reason for that was the borders were closed. People were not allowed to travel from Afghanistan to Pakistan. The government didn't want them to leave the country. So people would flee usually through very mountainous journeys, very dangerous, through alleys, through villages, through rivers, and at night. And that's the same journey we took. It took us seven days, seven nights on donkeys and horses. And the only thing we had was in that journey was oiled bread. We didn't even have water because we, we knew that some people would give us water or would just drink from the river. And uh, it was a caravan of 20, 25 families. We set off from Loga province one afternoon. And that's it. That was our journey towards Pakistan. That took seven days, seven nights. But along that journey, we came under fire three times. We got attacked three times. And on one occasion, I nearly, our whole family nearly got killed because usually any activity that they would see on the ground it would be attacked spotted by the spy plane and then it would be attacked by helicopter gunships and the jets that was the route the exact route that was used by the mujahideen guerrillas as well to bring in weapons so they wouldn't discriminate whether it's a family going out or the mujahideen are coming in to fight the oh um, government forces so they would eliminate anybody on the ground there and that's how we came under the attack three times and I'm, we miraculously survived those attacks before we made it to the refugee camp there in, in Pakistan, where we resided uh, for three years. So I will have to stop for a minute here. I, I, I want to continue the story. But anyone who is listening to us now, which basically means you have like a phone in your hand and you have an hour of safety that you can actually listen to me and Wahid chatting away, and if you've had eaten anything today other than oil and bread, and if you had water in the water tap, 
think about your life. And I, I don't mean to preach here, but I think people like me and Wahid who have grown up in difficult countries, let's say, we realize that just the safety and the food of your day in itself is a blessing that not everyone has. And, and if you were blessed to that level, you know, life is just amazing. Even if your boyfriend's annoying, even if your boss is uh, asking for too much, trust me, if you had to flee that route, being under fire, eating nothing, drinking nothing, you would understand that those are actually not problems. And so many of the world goes through that. It's, it's not something unusual. I mean, as Wahid started his conversation, he's in Afghanistan, he's in Africa, he's in Syria, India, so many places in the world where issues of that magnitude exist. So sorry to have interrupted you, Wahid, but that's the thought that came to my mind. Not, not at all. I think it's very important that um, this is a lesson of gratitude that I started using myself later on as well to get me through conflict. So throughout conflict, I will come to the details of the refugee camp and then the internal war that we said. But throughout that, I suffered mentally. I started developing depressive symptoms. Later on in the UK, I realized that I had PTSD as well, post-traumatic stress disorder that I didn't know I had along with anxiety. Like so many people have, not just me, so many people who flee conflict, they suffer from it. But for me, that power of gratitude, being alive each day was huge. And that's something that was ingrained into me that my dad was using it beautifully. My mom was more a realistic person. She was more amazing woman. She had a sixth sense about all the dangers, but my dad was always trying to be optimistic about the small positives. Oh, today I've heard this beautiful story on the news. Tomorrow is going to be a good day. Oh, I love that him. would keep us going in that sense. So I learned that from him. Yeah. Whereas my mom was very realistic and she, she would know how to manage such a big family out uh, in the refugee camp. And uh, um, she would not sleep throughout the night. She would be awake with a drop of a pen. She would wake up alert all the time. Amazing woman. She passed away sadly last year from cancer. So that's oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. So in the refugee camp, coming to that story of the what happened in the refugee camp, I realized the time here as well. So I tried to summarize that. In the refugee camp, we stayed for three years. Initially, we were safe, but soon we realized the conditions were horrendous. Like millions of other people who were living in refugee camps, as a family of eight and later on ten, we were living in one muddy room with temperatures rising up to forty-five degrees, with one fan very little food, lack of sanitation, and within days, because of that lack of sanitation and uh, mosquitoes, we started having malaria, most of the family members, which we survived. And within about three months, I contracted tuberculosis. I started coughing, and that cough started bringing up with it blood as well. And I became like a skeleton. I lost a lot of weight. I had night sweats, and I was soon diagnosed to have tuberculosis by the refugee camp doctor and they advised my dad to take me to a specialist in the Peshawar city where we were. So that doctor told my dad very frankly that he's so weak that I think he has about 60-70% chance of dying. So if you want to save him, yes, you, your medicine you need, but you also need nourishment for him as well. And we didn't have money. So my dad was working day and night going away to do money exchange and to do antique exchange from here and there to find some money to bring some meat or to bring some fruit that we couldn't afford for our entire family, but just wanted to give me the meat, milk and fruit with honey to keep that nourishment going on. Miraculously, again, we survived that. I survived that and most of family members survived all those conditions. We went back to Afghanistan after three years. But it was actually during that treatment of me by the doctor that I became inspired to become a doctor. Because on one hand, I saw so much suffering. On the other hand, I saw that this doctor had the power of healing in his hand. He was very smiling every time I was going with him uh, to be treated. He gave me a stethoscope and black and white textbook as well to keep looking at it to entertain myself because we had no toys. So the, the seeds of that inspiration uh, were planted right at that point that later on I brought with me to Afghanistan when we went back in 91. Sadly, the civil war broke out in 92. So because of that civil war. Did you ever meet that doctor again? I didn't. I didn't uh, meet him. Uh, it was a while back. I would have loved to meet him again. Can you imagine that? I mean, this person saved your life and in doing so, with so much kindness and compassion, I would say, but in doing so, he's now saving hundreds and hundreds of lives through you. 
Absolutely. I think that's a, a huge lesson amazing, for me. Huh? I took away from, from that incident as well, that that's the reason why I wrote the book In the Walls, my memoir, is that if somebody can read it, if it can inspire somebody, if it can inform somebody of the suffering, of the resilience, of how helping others can actually help ourselves and actually can exponentially help so many other people. And that's the, the big, big lesson in my memoir. And you may never know. The thing is that this amazing person that saved you may never know the extent of... They may never know. But that's another beautiful thing is that we do help and we don't have to follow it up in terms of yeah. we need to get back something out of it. We just do it. We release it in the sea and let it go in that sense. And with doing that, yeah. I think the life becomes a lot easier. We, we don't expect people to replicate our favors or what we've done for them. And that's exactly what I do on a day-to-day -day basis with the book, my memoir, hopefully as well, that if it inspires people, if they come to me, you want to speak here, you want to help here, yeah, I will. But on the other hand, if people take one or two things away from it... Is it out in... Yes, the book is out. It is out now uh, on Amazon. It's oh, out it, is, it is. I didn't know. I thought it was out in September. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Yes. All right. So did you guys hear that? Writing it as well has been a huge, uh, a huge healing process for me, detailing my journey, which I've I just said, and uh, the yeah. teleheal my own life there. So coming back to the um, conflict zones, I'll summarize that period, 92 days, civil war started till 96, and then the Taliban took over, and that went on to 99 when I was there. So again, we were fleeing from one part of the city to another in Afghanistan, from one part of the country to the other, to find safety, again, hiding in cellars. And it's back in those cellars where my most of my education happened, mm. to self-reading whatever books my dad could find on the street or I could find on the street. I would take them there with a lamp in the middle of the night, trying to make sense of science, chemistry, and physics here and there. Uh, and I would listen to English radio, to BBC World, to... Imagine another world which existed. I didn't know that it exists, but uh, it existed. And I would learn my English from it as well, hoping that one day I would be able to go to school. I will have a flat somewhere. I will be safe. I will have food and all the basic necessities that so many people like myself didn't have access to. In 99, when one of our neighbor's house completely got flattened by a bomb and with it, everybody there then that was a tipping point for my family, which they decided to send me away on my own as uh, an asylum seeker to the UK. They sold everything. They gave it to an agent. There is no formal route to send people. So they gave it to one of the people smugglers. Then later on, I found out that he was a smuggler rather than somebody who said that uh, we're going to get you the refugee visa. And those refugee visas don't exist. So I think people need to understand when people, they see people fleeing crossing their channel, going from different routes. They don't have routes to flee. There is just no route. People are caught in conflict. When they're fleeing for their lives, whatever route they can find, they will use. That's why they rest their lives, because the alternative is death. So hence, my parents didn't want me to die. My life was in danger. They sent me away. And I came here to the UK, age 15, with $100 in my pocket, with uh, no family support, very little education and little command of English. But when I came in, I had that hope for safety, which the British people, the government gave me, and a dream to become a doctor. I didn't know how, but I was inspired to become a doctor and I wanted to give back to my family as well. And that created so much determination in me yeah. that I really wanted to do something. I asked around, how can I become a doctor? And they, the guys looked at me, they, they smiled, they said, listen, Wahid, we know you've come from Afghanistan. We know your background. You've not been to school much. You're not white. You, you, you're you not privileged enough. Just why don't you, instead of wasting your time, try to work in a chicken shop, try to become a taxi driver, and then maybe you open a chicken shop. Amazing jobs. I really admire hard work. And I did start doing hard work, like becoming a salesperson on Edgeware Road in one of the shops, uh, cleaning. I was also became a kitchen porter. I love those jobs. Because it, for me, it was I was working, I was being reimbursed for my hard work. But my vision was not to become a chicken wing specialist. For my vision was ultimately for my life to be a doctor. Of course, that vision changes for everybody. I'm not trying to tell everybody to become doctors. Not everybody should. We need every different profession, hard work in the society. But following the dreams is my point here is that I didn't allow people to put me off my dream. 
So I continue with working three jobs during the day and combine that with initially self-reading GCSE and English books. And then I did three colleges in the evening in London to do my AS and A-levels. And through that hard work, determination and that power of being inspiration that I brought in with me, despite suffering from PTSD and anxiety, I didn't know what it was. I managed to get the A grades required to go to Cambridge. And then to Cambridge University, that was another long experience, probably out of the scope of our talk uh, here, that how I was even put off from applying to Cambridge University by a tutor in my own college. And they put it very frankly to me that, Wahid, come on, we hardly have any student applying from this college, let alone somebody like you as a refugee coming in. Where is your GCSE result? I said, I don't have any GCSEs. He just immediately stopped me. I said, like, are you kidding me? You know, the people who apply to Cambridge University, they come in with a stars full of a stars full of all these extracurricular activities and not everything so he spent 30 minutes instead of motivating me to or preparing for me for the cambridge interview or the cambridge application rather i would say first he just tried to put me off and i, I came out i was completely burst out crying but i just composed myself and i just told myself listen if i've survived the soviet bombs the helicopter gunships and i've made it to the uk safely and i have roof over my head, I can work. I'm not going to be put off by applying to Cambridge University. So I created that mindset <laughs> from a, then on. a smaller challenge than what we've yes, gone through, right? Absolutely. You know, this, so, so from then on, that that's become my mentality as well. I've become very competitive that if somebody tells me that you can't do something, I will focus harder. So I think that's something is that instead of being put off by something, as long as it sits with my vision, as long as it's a humanitarian work, it helps people, it will not put me off. Of course, if it's something unnecessary, I wouldn't do it. But the mindset, creating that mindset is that people shouldn't be put off by other people's opinions. Do you believe everyone can, Wahid? I mean, I don't know you. I hope I will get to know you over the years more and more. But some people are born talented. Like, you know, they're very intelligent. They're super smart. They're like Harvard quality or whatever that is. I don't believe that. I believe if anyone tries hard and puts in the effort it may take longer but you eventually will get there well absolutely this is exactly the point of my book as well in the wars again that i want to preach to people this is the one thing if i want to preach to people is that hard work pays off determination pays off the vision to try to help other people will come back and help you back it's simple as that it's that Yes, some people, there is genetics involved. I'm not denying that uh, as a physician as well. But it has a certain level of influence. The society plays a huge part. The family plays a huge part. But then that personal determination does come into it. And that varies as well. I agree. It's from one person to another how much they're inspired of, how much resilient they are. That's a subjective part as well. But the society can help these people as well. You know, I got help. Along the way, I've talked about some negative experiences, but along the way, the person who gave me my first job on Edgeware Road, he knew I was uh, just an asylum seeker. I didn't have even the paperwork, and he immediately employed me. He said, you know what? I told him the story that I need the money to feed my family. He looked at me, an Irish guy, and he said, I'll help you, but don't tell anyone. I said, I will not. So that, that sort of kindness, the kindness that I later on saw from people helping me on so many other ways in the society as well. So I think it's we have to look at it not just as, as one person doing things, how much the society can help them, and that person not giving up on their dreams as well. And keep persevering. There will be obstacles, there will be challenges, there will be knockdowns, but it's how many times we manage to get up is really important. And I have seen during my time in Cambridge University that uh, people extremely talented who've been to private schools, achieved so much, they gave up after three years, just could not handle the pressure. But for me, I don't think that's even the case. I don't think they were genuinely inspired to do medicine because you really need that deeper interest into a topic, the desire to do something, not just medicine. If somebody wants to get my advice, what they want to do in life, it's just you really need to reflect on what they want to do with their life. It's simple as that. Once they can inspire themselves enough to wake up early in the morning to say, I love to see patients, which I do now when I every weekend, I don't get tired of seeing patients on my own. And that's the only time I see them in A&E as an emergency doctor. There's a smile on my face because that's why I picked up a stethoscope. 
is just to treat patients on my own. And then secondly, through the charity itself. So that kept me going despite suffering from the PTSD, the anxiety and the social isolation in Cambridge University. I struggled for the first two years with exams because I, I didn't know how to learn. During my A-levels, I was putting everything into my mind to memorize chemistry, to memorize biology. And I was doing a lot of past papers for uh, maths and physics. So it worked. But at Cambridge University, I'm there sitting next to people who've properly done schools, who have probably been educated <laughs> who mm. know that they're amazing laptops, their writing was so fast. I was looking at them, I was lost. And I was like, oh my God, how do I survive here? But I still didn't give up. I mean, after two years, I figured out how to do mind maps, how to do speed reading. I got myself up to the speed and I got a first for my research project. <laughs> so it's, it's just that didn't put me off the first two years as well and brought that mentality to Imperial College in London when I finished my clinical studies and I did a rotation at Harvard as well. But ultimately, it was all driven by me having all these problems, by me, all these difficulties. But I did have that inspiration to keep going. The reason, I knew my why. It's so hard to believe for people who, who think about the reality of where you're coming from and how far you've come. It's so hard for, for people to believe. But I will tell you openly, once again, I mean, I was blessed to grow up in Egypt. I think, Wahid, I don't know how you look back at those years, but I, I found that the difficulties that you face in life teach you. You know, they show your true colors. They show your real element, if you want, right? And somehow you realize that other things are not that complicated. They're not really worthy of the time we waste on them. Can I ask you a question, Wade? So you have a family now. I do. I am blessed with uh, my wife and my two children, Alana, my daughter, my son, who is uh, five years old. How are they supporting all of this? I mean, in an interesting way, I will have to question, I say that with a lot of love and respect, but family expects daddy to make them number one priority, but you have so many priorities in life. How is that going? That's a very good question. A very good question. I think I'm really blessed with an amazing supporting wife who came to Afghanistan. She was born here in the UK. She's half Croatian, half uh, English. She came to Afghanistan four times with me. Oh my God. Uh, and she was absolutely mesmerized by the beautiful culture, by the beautiful country, by our family. She didn't even know how to speak the same language, but they were having absolute blast every time she went in. Usually she's used to a family of four coming in, then she was surrounded by a family of 50. <laughs> then yes. from every direction, that child was popping their head. Uh, it, it was an absolutely beautiful experience for her and myself to go in there. Our neighbors would come in. Oh, we've got a guest from the UK. They would bring in little food. I, I'm sure it happens in Egypt. You know, I have friends from Egypt. And I know about the beautiful culture. We, yeah, we, we've got very a collective similar. culture in that sense that we're very close net. The family is, you know, a dozen of them live in two rooms. It doesn't matter. We, we survive. We find ways. And that's exactly what Davina found out, my wife in Afghanistan. But it just showed to me that how much she supported what I was doing, my vision, even writing the book. I didn't open up too much to her in the beginning because coming from conflict zone, I had created another reality. And I think this is in my book as well, that in a way I tried to lock everything out. I was telling people, oh, I've been sponsored here. I didn't want to lie too much, but I just didn't want people to, I didn't want to lie in the first place, but I just didn't want people to interfere into my background because I was scared because I had suffered quite a lot and I just wanted a new beginning. But with mental health, with uh, PTSD, it doesn't work that way. You really have to process your emotions. You have to accept the reality of what you've been through. And later on through meeting Davina, I started reconciling with my reality of what I've been through. And as soon as I was doing that, and she told me, oh my God, you need to write this. I said, oh, come on, I don't have time to write it. And uh, so many people <laughs> have suffered as well. And so on. I said, no, 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 you don't realize it's not normal, Wahid. You need to write it down. <laughs> it is it not will... <laughs> normal, Wahid. I can get it. It's not you normal. <laughs> and, uh, so, so she's learned to live with an abnormal person, but I make time. I get a lot Do of you? support, a lot of love from her. And I can't allocate the entire day. That's one thing she knows. But I allocate, for example, the whole morning with family. 
that's it. Afternoon, family, evening, family. So I've got set points throughout the week that before or during the weekend, I tell them, okay, which evenings you want me home and which uh, afternoons or mornings. But she does the majority of the work in the house as well as supports the charity. So it's a really huge, beautiful synergy between us that uh, has allowed me to do all these things. So I think it boils down to that important point that family is so important. And that has been a part of my blessing and a part of my healing as well. You're a lucky man. I do, I do believe uh, Davina, the way you describe her, is a blessing. But in an interesting way, I think you deserve a blessing. I think uh, somehow the universe finds those that are supposed to do something, supposed to change something. And it helps in very unexpected ways. I think a loving, supportive wife is definitely on top of, of those ways, I, uh, or husband or whatever, yeah. Absolutely. And I do believe in that as well, that how the universe helps us, how so many incidents happened from me looking up to the sky and asking God, can I have a way out, for example, from Afghanistan? I didn't know how putting all my fate and our family's fate and money into an agent disappearing from a country where I only had been bombarded by a plane, but then I'm sitting in a plane and then leaving everything behind, coming here. Then all meeting all these amazing people along the way to help me throughout my journey. We talk about me a lot here, but I think there are so many other people who have helped. And I think that shouldn't take away the fact that there is beauty, there is kindness, there is a lot of giving amongst people. We're not talking about me a lot, as a matter of fact, at all. This is one of the things I was going to ask you. Normally, people who go through what you've gone through, Wahid, with the PTSD, with the sense of lack of safety, constant sense of threat around you, they normally become very focused on themselves, on protecting themselves, on collecting for themselves, on just acquiring as much safety in monetary form or in other forms as possible. But you seem to have turned the other way around. It's, it's like, okay, I've been through hell. And your response to it is, let me fly back to hell and work a little harder to have enough money to buy the tickets to fly back to hell and go to the places where the bombs are, which is really interesting. Somehow, your entire story is not about you at all. How can you find the courage to do that? That's very kind of you, Motsi. It's the truth. It's what I saw. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched, uh, by, by the way, I think people should watch that too. There was a BBC documentary. I don't remember the name. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. What is it? Yes. It's, a, it's Wahid's Wars. And, uh, Wahid's uh, Wars, yes. Called, yeah, yeah. Uh, Wahid's Wars, yes. <laughs> that was an interesting name chosen by the BBC for that. But I've given the details. I think a lot of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing in the book, in the wars, which I hope will give people some information of how we can, despite suffering from personal difficulties, despite suffering obstacles outside, inside, we can still find happiness. We can still find a way a courage you mentioned here to do something but the purpose has to come first for me it has always been that purpose of one trying to in the first instance when i came to the uk it was to get some education but what i wanted the education was for to become a doctor why i wanted to do was to help my family so at first i didn't have such a big vision but i just wanted to help my family support them and I knew that that would help them. And I could see that my parents were becoming weaker and I could just treat them. There was not much treatment. And I could see that there were so many people in the refugee camp. So in my mind, that was what was going on, that if I become a doctor, I can support them financially. I can support them physically in terms of giving them medical advice. I can help my village people, the people. So I didn't have such a big vision of helping Afghanistan, the entire country and so on. But that's the power of it. Usually things start small. When they start small, taking small steps really help. And that's where the more motivation comes in. That when I started, when one person got treated from our charity, I saw the power of it. And that kept me motivated. That kept motivating everybody else as well. So for us to do something, if you can call it big, it doesn't have to be bigger from the start. That courage to do something small, having clear purpose, even if the purpose is not too clear, but we have a focus to do something and we know why we're doing it, it will work out. There will be people to help out as long as that there is a pure purpose behind it. It could be in business, 
But as long as it's not just for collecting money, for example, for ourselves, we have a purpose of making a difference in that society, in that industry. Through law, you want to help people, you want to do something. It's finding that inner focus, inner purpose in any job, I think is really important. And that will eliminate a lot of the noise around it. I really think supporting family, earning money, it is very important. And I am an innovator, I'm an entrepreneur in that sense as well. I look at things, how to be able to support family better in the future as well. But my big purpose here is different. Even in my head now that I become multimillionaire in the future, yeah, create something or something. What do I do without money? For me, it will be creating more systems like Teleheal to do other things with it. And sometimes I laugh at things. I say like, oh my God, some people have the money. They really don't know what to I do. I was talking it. about this to a friend uh, yesterday. But, but you, don't need, you don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of money. Exactly. What we are doing is it proves the point that you really don't need a lot of money as well. Yeah, it's amazing, really, because in an interesting way, people who have hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, if you keep a few hundred million for yourself and give the rest away, you can change the world. But somehow that mentality doesn't fit in with the ultra rich. It's quite interesting. I hope one day you will be a multimillionaire and I hope you will invest it in those things. I hope I will be too. You know, I'm reasonably okay with life, very, very comfortable. I hope one day I'll be a billionaire and I'll give it away all to charity. I think we need more people that are driven by that. Wahid, I will tell you openly you're my absolute hero. Like you are Superman. That really is humbling for me to see. I've seen your amazing work. I'm sorry, I, I really wanted to ask you a lot of questions, but uh, I, I realized that I, I, I'm the guest <laughs> oh, no. here, so I didn't I'm, want to put I you on the spot. Nothing. But in the future, um, we will meet as friends. We will have another one. Let's do that. Coffee, when I'm in London, I would be so honored. You are such an amazing inspiration. Like, truly and honestly, everyone... I suggest everyone has to read in the wars. I think it's just open it. I expect, I haven't read it yet, but I, I expect that before you go to bed every day, just read four pages and you'll see how blessed your life is as compared to the life that Wahid had to lead so far. And, you know, there is so much that we learned today about that vision, that idea of I can go back into the war zone and actually make a difference. I think that's absolutely incredible. Wait, how can people help with Teleheal itself? We have a website. Thank you very much for mentioning that. So it's uh, www.ariantelehil.com. So A-R-I-A-N-T-E-L-E-H-E-A-L.com. And from my personal website, it's uh, www.dr w-a-h-e-e-d dot a-r-i-a-n dot com so all the links are there of how they want to help charity is uk based it's uh, governed by the charity commission and in any way i could help people as well if they have suggestions if they have advice or if they need my support please do write i'm on twitter i'm on instagram uh, i do read my dms if there is anything i can help i reply back and I give suggestions of connections or anything, if I can be of service, anytime. So uh, everyone listening, please take this seriously. I think Wahid is doing amazing, amazingly, the most humane and human way you can contribute to life. So help him out and let me know when you do. And I will tell you a small surprise when you let me know. And uh, Wahid, I am so grateful. I am so grateful. I hope that we stay in touch. I hope that whenever you need anything from me, you let me know. Thank you so much, Mo. And I hope others who have been through any type of adversity, if they're listening to this, if not just from conflict zone, but that's what the book is about as well, that if they have been through adversity here in the UK, US, anywhere, that there is a way out. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, not to give up, to keep persevering, and to keep half that faith and to find that inner purpose within yourself. Reach out to each other. So that's all I can say, and hopefully I'll end it by that. Well, I will leave it at that. I, I really don't even want to comment on this conversation. I think this is just an invitation for all of us to reflect on where we are in life, how blessed we really are, and what are we going to do with the blessings that we've been given. I think this was an open invitation for gratitude. And perhaps when you're done listening, 
you should just pause and close your eyes and think for a few minutes about all of the blessings that you have been given. I admire this human. I think he's a true superhero. I am so grateful that by listening to Slow Mo, you give me the opportunity to connect to such amazing human beings. I hope you enjoyed this and that it inspired you as much as it inspired me. And I hope you spread the message. I think there are so many people that should hear the story of a hero like Wahid Aryan. And please do visit Wahid's charity, Aryan Talihil, and donate. You'll be saving lives. And that in itself is a big difference you can make today. Find me on social media, get in touch, keep the communication going, keep recommending guests, and send me your feedback. And I urge you, after listening to Dr. Wahid, to slow down a little, perhaps the next weekend, to think about all that you heard. Because of course, as I always say, it doesn't really matter what's on your agenda every day. There's always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.